Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And after the show, if you missed any of the live broadcast, you can catch us up on iTunes and also other podcasting platforms, including Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, which is a great app for smart TVs, uh, and Stitcher, and also many other great podcasting platforms. And also, you can just download it from Spreaker directly uh, from the Alternate Current Radio ACR's Mothership page at Spreaker.com. Just type in Alternate Current Radio into the search and you can get all of the episodes of all of the shows actually on ACR there, including the Sunday Wire. Now, uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about propaganda, and we were trying to explain you know, how propaganda is, is changing, how it's having to adapt, uh, how methods are changing within the media and so forth. There's just so many different aspects of this to delve into, and there's no better way to really understand this than to talk about people who work in journalism and who work in media. And our next guest uh, is a journalist uh, who most recently resigned from his position at a, a, a fairly well-known uh, international publication, U.S.-based originally. It's called Newsweek. A lot of people are familiar with Newsweek. And uh, his name is Tariq Haddad. And he's joining us uh, on the live link this week for the Sunday Wire. Hello, Tariq. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this week. Yeah, I just I just dipped my toe in before the break, uh, talking about you know how the you know, media is covering various stories, and mm-hmm. you can easily easily get sucked into a, a fifteen minute diatribe about <laughs> different nuances of it. So you know, I'm telling you, mm-hmm. this is a very vast topic. But so you, you've got a very interesting perspective that I, a lot of people. Uh, you, you did catch the attention of a lot of people a few weeks ago uh, when you announced that you were resigning from your position at Newsweek. And mm-hmm. you were doing that it was over, I believe, a specific story, which is uh, not quite making the headlines, but is, uh, is being talked about in other circles. This is the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, based in The Hague. There's been leaks uh, from this organization throughout the year of 2019. The media has been pretty much uh, stonewalling this story from the beginning, and only a few people, a few journalists have have covered it. You wanted to cover it, uh, Mm -hmm. it was my understanding, but you were kind of warned off it by your editors at uh, at Newsweek, and so I I assume that was the the reason for your resignation, but also Mm -hmm. maybe because you wanted to raise a lot of other issues as a result. Uh, Tell us your story. How, How did this... How did this whole drama start? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it might be useful to give a little bit of background as well, because I think um, I've written about some of these things. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have um, have read my piece, but uh, just to give some kind of additional background. Um, so, yeah, kind of one of my um, main um, kind of motivating factors for getting into journalism was the Iraq war. Um, so kind of why, you know, hundreds of journalists got it wrong. You know, so I kind of focused on this um, aspect of it and so decided to become, you know, a professionally trained journalist. I trained with the Press Association here in the UK um, in one of kind of according to that, you know, to the centre itself. It was considered to be one of the best in the the United Kingdom. You know, lots of top journalists have come from there Um, and then, you know, worked my way up through the industry doing various internships and things of that nature before I 
um, you know, got a full-time position at the Hull Daily Mail, which is, again, um, you know, one of the best regional newspapers in the UK, you know, trained in the kind of classical style of journalism that might not be so readily available to people now, but, you know, local newspaper going to court, going to um, government meeting, going to car crashes, all that kind of thing. Um, made it up the kind of the ranks to finally start working on a more international and national level. So I joined IB Times, which is actually uh, was formerly a sister organization of Newsweek. Um, and so there I was kind of, you know, um, you know, imp- uh, what's the right word? I built my reputation as a, as a, re- a reporter covering, uh, you know, politics and foreign affairs. Um, so I left news, uh, IB Times in 2016, um, partly because IB Times um, was losing a lot of money. Uh, it was kind of pursuing this clickbait model of journalism of that um, just wasn't successful. Um, I was feeling, feeling very frustrated in the industry um, because... I could see that this kind of clickbait model was just not sustainable. I could see, um, you know, that a lot of people were very upset, or not upset, but just maybe disappointed by the media or expected more from the media, uh, especially, you know, reputable organizations to be kind of producing clickbait stories on a, on a regular basis. I thought, you know, if, if you, you know, if we really cared about our readership numbers and how to kind of retain readers, I thought the actual solution to do that was to do real journalism, which was kind of becoming a rarer and rarer thing. It was, you know, it was almost strange timing for me personally, because I got this promotion to where I was working on an international level and on a personal level that should feel satisfying, but I was actually doing less journalism than I was when I was at the Hull Daily Mail, where I was actually interviewing people all the time. I was going out to different things. For example, I went to the Calais refugee camp in northern France to kind of cover the um, you know, the migrant story or, I would, you know, all that kind of sort of old school real journalism, which is kind of becoming a rare, rare thing. Um, so I, I went to IB Times and I started covering you know, big, big issues, but it was all done basically off of Twitter. And, you know, you very rarely left the office, which in my experience as a journalist is, is not how journalism should be done. You should be out and about speaking to people or visit, going to meetings or, you know, trying to make contacts. Um, yeah, so I left the industry for about two years, um, tried to write a book about, um, polarization which i thought is also a very big issue at the moment and it's kind of some of my fears at that time um have kind of only got got worse and we can get into that if you if you wish but um yeah so after after two years of that i kind of um just kind of discovered that writing a book's a fairly difficult difficult job and i have to support myself so um decided to come back into journalism got this opportunity at newsweek um through my previous connections of the organization you know i had a very good reputation with the editors um never ha- really had any any issues so through that relationship i got, I got the job at newsweek uh, that started in september um yeah and then sort of at a similar time the whole um even though syria had been kind of a fairly well kind of a topic that has been more and more going towards the back burner um the turkish invasion that started in i believe it was september or october sorry it must have been mid-october or early october 
Um, and because of my previous previous foreign affairs reporting, I you know started to report on this um, on the incursion. Uh, about a week into that incursion, there was um, alleged white phosphorus use by Turkey. Um, I don't know if um, your listeners would kind of need a little bit of explanation as to the background of white phosphorus and things like that. Um, or if I should just kind of keep going. Sure. Yeah, white phosphorus. Yeah, just explain, um, you, you know, what you, what you think uh, sure. it is. Yeah, so um, it's kind of this chemical that burns at intense heat, um, but the problem with it is that it's not very usually considered, um, when it's used, it's not usually considered to be in contravention of the kind of chemical weapons conventions or things like that. Um, there are legitimate uses for it in um, kind of in weaponry and in warfare. And so and this is partly because the the conventions have all been drafted by military people essentially but and so you know they've always kind of wanted to never get in the way of military interests but essentially you know this devastating chemical is still widespread amongst all armies um you know it's used in, in smoke grenades and it's used for tactical reasons um so I did did a story kind of investigating why it still continued to be um, so, you know, red, or readily used by armies when it has these, um, you know, devastating effects. So I was trying to kind of get at the issues, trying to kind of give background to people. So it was while I was investigating that story that um, I started to kind of hear about these things happening within the OPCW. Um, within the first, you know, first, uh, you know, the early days of that, of that situation, it wasn't, you know, I didn't feel like it was anything that I could, you know, go to my editors to report. It was all um, kind of not hearsay, but it was, you know, evidence that was kind of scattered around different places that was still, you know, still building. And obviously I, you know, had my suspicions at the time anyway, that a lot of these chemical weapons weren't exactly as what we were told um, from my understanding of propaganda and things like that, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um yeah, so it reached a point uh, when Peter Hitchens uh, from the Mail on Sunday, he published a story that contained a leaked letter from one of the OPCW scientists. And so that was the, the moment I decided to, um, you know, approach my editors with this story to say, you know, listen, I understand this is a very controversial topic. I'm, I'm, you know, no stranger to the to the mainstream media landscape. I know to say something, you know, that kind of contradicts the main narrative on, on Syria is a very challenging thing to do. But the reason I, I felt like it was important to do this was that, um, you know, it's it was the letter's been published in a, in a reputable newspaper here in the UK. Um, whatever people think of uh, the, you know, the Daily Mail's politics, I think what people fail to understand, or the people that want to dismiss them fail to understand, is that actually they still have very high levels of, you know, journalism. Um, and you know, same thing with Peter Hitchens. A few people have maybe can try to kind of smear him and say whatever they will about him. And I know he writes. Um, kind of uh, these opinion columns that that can be incendiary to, to kind of depending on your politics and I, i'm not saying i am in favor or i'm against those things but um you know regardless of those things he has a solid 
journalism background. Um, and so he decided to kind of step out of that opinion writing role to do, uh, you know, kind of go back to his roots in journalism because he felt like this was a very important story, which it is. Um, I approached my editors with, you know, with, with the, this information and started to kind of receive reasons that I didn't feel were adequate for not running the story. Um, firstly, it was a, a refutation article that was published by Bellingcat. Um, you know, I, I've long had my suspicions about Bellingcat, but, you know, much of that information in the two years that I've, I've spent away from the industry has now been made to light um, because of, you know, several journalists that, you know, they've got um, you know, funding from, you know, places like the National Endowment for Dem Democracy and, you know, essentially think tanks or, you know, the Atlantic Council that are very much have corporate or like military interests in pursuing these wars. So to say that these are independent investigative journalists is a complete lie. Um, and I don't, so, you know, I was already aware of that, but I, I knew that saying something like this to my editors would be incendiary in itself. So instead of just, I mean, I did point that out, but I also actually took the, the article that was published by Bellingcat and I refuted all of the points that were mentioned in the, in the article. And I sent this back to my editors saying, you know, thanks for sending me this, but, you know, here's my response to what they have to say. Um, the editor that I was talking to, Demi Ryder, who's mentioned in my original piece, um, you know, didn't continue the conversation further than this point. It was just kind of... And this, I guess, I well, I believe is is the trend in in the the whole industry is that uh, editors will just say, "Listen, Bellingcat have done this; it's a fake news story, or the facts don't quite add up. We're not going to run it." Um, this is clearly problematic. First of all, like we've mentioned, that the Bellingcat funding sources and they're essentially a propaganda arm of the military. Uh, and secondly, it kind of felt very insulting to my my capabilities as a journalist. You know, I'm more than capable of reading documents for myself and going through the facts. And, you know, I became a journalist to do that, and I've been doing that my whole career. So, you know, when when that, you know, when that was completely dismissed and that's when I started to feel, you know, this is not this is not acceptable for for a, you know, organization that claims to be doing journalism. You, you know the term political correctness and how that's mm -hmm. how that's wielded in in the discourse um, mm -hmm. socially and politically. There's there's also geopolitically correct now. Oh, okay. words, <laughs> certain certain state actors and certain organizations are there's good guys and bad guys. And Bellingcat mm -hmm. opposes Russia. Russia's a bad guy, yeah. so Bellingcat must be a good guy. This is the basic paradigm of mm -hmm. geopolitical correctness that sure. must be adhered to. And it, I, mm -hmm. it, it it functions exactly like political correctness. Sure. And I guess it's, I mean, this is a very interesting point to raise, actually, because and it's part of the reason I've, I'm, I guess, more aware of these things compared to possibly other people is that one thing that I was studying, you know, very closely when I was becoming a journalist is how language is weaponized. Um, and so you kind of see that with the invention of the term conspiracy theory, how that was used to, you know, dismiss you know, counter narratives to to stories, and now we've you know we've got dozens of 
words that have infiltrated uh, news writing that are just simply inaccurate or their attempts to delegitimize certain certain opinions. So we've obviously got things like calling uh, Al-Qaeda or you know, terrorists in Syria as moderate rebels, that kind of situation. Anyone that will say anything that's opposed to, you know, US interests, but might align with Russia's interests, even though they have no affiliation with Russia, will get called a, you know, Russian asset, which is one of the most farcical things I've ever heard. Um, And, you know, or Bashar al-Assad apologists, that kind of thing. So I think... Because my back, you know, I'm Jordanian and Russian, and so, but I grew up in the UK for most of my life. Is that my experiences of Arab people or Russian people has always been, you know, very, very positive. You know, my fam, you know, the culture in, in the Middle East has so many beautiful aspects to it, and same with Russia, that people in the Western world just have no idea about. So, you know, when I kind of saw this, um, seemingly irrational attitude towards those countries purely based from the media i was you know i was i was very aware of how language is being used to manipulate um opinions do you see that uh tariq do you see that as a is a kind of expression of uh of you know if you're familiar with the work of uh of edward said orientalism Mm -hmm. or 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 in a neo-colonial way Mm -hmm. this this kind of you know talking down to countries in the Middle East, um, especially countries that are not monarchies, because if you notice, mm-hmm. the, the, the real ear uh, from the West is, is, is targeting countries that aren't monarchies in, mm-hmm. in the Middle East. They, te- they tend to get the worst treatment <laughs> of, of that's all. Kind of, <laughs> that's kind of an ironic thing, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say it's... Um, I mean, it's probably an extension of the work that of yeah uh, Edward Said has done, and I, I've read um, his books, um, or you know the the, the, uh, the three obviously Orientalism, and then there was covering Islam, and then I think he wrote a third one on the Palestine question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yes, it, I think it is. I think I mean the the context that Edward Said talks about it is in a, in a slightly different setting but i think to an extent it is that um also i I guess just more simply it's um you know just trying to shut down any any form of counter narrative that is you know not not convenient for military interests or interests of profiteering from war and uh you brought up what you just said uh, really connects with a previous statement you made about the how the trends in the media Mm -hmm. there's there's definite trends you've seen them the media themselves are admitting that the the industry has changed uh Mm -hmm. that they are moving towards a clickbait model you have content farms like like ib times like uh like like the mail online Mm -hmm. and so you've got so in this new environment where they're doing they, they admit we don't have the budgets our business model can't support people going out and doing real journalism anymore they yeah. even admit this i hear mm-hmm. it in forums and they say that so they're looking for made to order evidence to go yes and and this this really suits the trends that are affecting their business model of the mainstream media that the, the industry admits and so here on a plate comes exactly. Bellingcat. Comes Bellingcat. Could, could I add to that a little bit, actually? Yeah. Because um, you see, I think, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of journalists that, you know, 
they're in this circumstance and they still try to do the best that they can do. Um, so what ends up happening is that because we're kind of confined to our offices and we have to write several stories a day um, on complicated things, we can't leave the office. What ends up happening is that we rely heavily on social media and we also rely very much on experts, usually from think tanks. Now, you see, this is kind of where it's another aspect of it that becomes problematic is that, you know, the people that profit from war or, the you know, that have benefit in, in attacking Syria or up dozens of other countries, for example, the US government has essentially learned how to manipulate social media. And that's why we start, you know, we have plenty of evidence of staged propaganda videos. And, you know, we could talk about the white helmets as well. Um, but also, you know, because we're constantly relying on experts from think tanks, these, these think tanks will just provide us with, um, you know, opinions that we can't really um, verify for ourselves. We're not there on the ground to do real journalism. So we'll kind of just, you know, call up an expert from uh, Chatham House or for, or whatever and be like, okay, this is happening in Iraq. Can you tell me what's going on? And those words will just get reprinted in, in, our, in our articles, even though they might actually be very, um, very far removed from the actual truth of the matter. Yeah, and and I think with with Bellingcat, it's even mm-hmm. it's even better because it's almost like well, we don't need to do any investigation, yes. and they're vetted, they're winning awards. Exactly, uh, they, they've gotten the uh, the seal of approval from the UK Foreign Office, from the mm-hmm. US State Department, uh, from King's College in London, uh, yeah. the Atlantic Council. Everybody's endorsed Bellingcat, so there's no need to. They're they're totally unimpeachable credentials. Exactly, basically. So it 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 does suit. It, these ver- all these trends that you've listed out, mm-hmm. um, that you've identified in the mainstream, the, the, the structural problems of mainstream media in the 21st century, Bellingcat is provides a, a ready-made solution to mm-hmm. so many of the gaps. Exactly, uh, and and I think that's part of the appeal, and I think that's why a lot of people would like to do like yourself, like other journalists that would mm-hmm. like to do more on the ground investigations, but simply they can't. It's not feasible at all sure. within the context of the organizations that they're working in. Yeah, and just to add to that quickly as well, I mean, it's mentioned in my article, but again, um, for people who haven't read it yet, the one thing that I discovered at Newsweek is that, um, you know, there are, and this is again a trend across the industry, is that uh, a large number of editors have have this giant conflict of interests where they, they their personal careers have been financed by these these same think tanks and uh, the U.S. State Department in the same way that Bellingcat has. And, you know, they'll they'll go and do fellowships at certain think tanks, um, you know, such as the Council of Foreign Relations or, you know, there's a number of others not coming to my head at the moment. But, uh, you know, they sit in newsrooms all over the world and they are the ones that will, you know, they have... And there'll be foreign affairs editors or so, and they'll say, they'll be the ones to say, you know, look, this is, you know, this is why we, sh- you know, we should use Bellingcat. But obviously, because they come from that same environment, that's, that's the reason, you know, they're pushing that. So one thing that I've been, I guess, proposing or saying that we should, journalism should do going forward is that, 
you know, established publications should not be hiring people for, or, you know, should not have people with links to these think tanks employed. And if, if you start to look at this across organizations, you will see just how many of them there are. And that's definitely a big part of this problem. Yeah. And in the U.S. on the broadcast television side, yeah. there's another problem, which is that there's it's a revolving door between uh, government administrations and broadcast TV now. Yeah. And, Absolutely. And military as well. And so th- they're staffing pretty much all of the pundits, uh, yes. anchors even, a host of new shows. They're all ex-chiefs of staff mm-hmm. uh, from the previous administration. Whether well, yeah. It's, yeah. So. Well, you're starting to see this at Newsweek as well. I mean, uh, one of, uh, I think he joined at a similar time to me, um, uh, an employee called Naveed Jamali, who very openly says that he was a, a U.S., a formerly a U.S. spy. Um, and I remember kind of receiving the the kind of notification on internal messaging systems kind of saying, you know, please welcome Naveed, make him feel blah, blah, blah. I just, you know, looked into his background and I was shocked, but I I didn't really say anything to anyone, but I was, you know, how, just asking myself, how could this, this guy, uh, work in a newsroom. So I think we're seeing that similar trend from TV, uh, cable news, which I think has, has been well documented and talked about. We're seeing that filter across the newspapers as well. And what's interesting with Naveed Jamali is that, um, you know, when, uh, well, Newsweek was, was the publication that, for, you know, had the exclusive story about Baghdadi's death. But if you'll notice, and, you know, they, they had several exclusives in that week, um, about kind of what was going on in Syria, about, you know, the movements, and because it, obviously it was the time of American troops were going to be withdrawn. And his his byline is on all of those stories. So it, there's definitely, you know, and he's got no, absolutely no background in journalism whatsoever. But, you know, he'll be, fe- you know, he'll be providing this information based on, on his sources or, or his his connections within you know uh, uh, the US government to essentially feed positive propaganda stories um, and then stories like mine that are counter counter that narrative um, I'm forced to resign from the publication and and your your, your editor basically said that basically said that um, well, I appreciate your questions, Tariq, but you know I've got the Bellingcat article here, and exactly. that's good enough. That's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. And we've actually seen this 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 theme repeat itself. Mm-hmm. So this is this isn't an isolated incident. I we just uh, shared a tweet I think uh, in the last twenty four hours about uh, some similar similar scenario. You could read into another in another media outlet. Pretty much yeah. the same thing happening. Yeah. But um, on the OPCW story, just you know, for those who are not up to date on the latest mm-hmm. the, the the latest the latest revelations are pretty damning as mm-hmm. as were the previous leaks but so you have an internal document purge so that's an internal cover up of what could have been exculpatory evidence that would have uh, 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 vin- exonerated the Syrian government in the Duma mm-hmm. 2018 attacks that's one the, mm-hmm. the the investigation team was shut out of the preparation of the final public report so th- those who did the investigation weren't allowed to help draft the final report that went public, yeah. uh, which blamed the Syrian government. The, you have toxicology experts saying that uh, that chlorine gas couldn't have uh, created the symptoms that we saw on the videos of the the, the, chil- the dead children foaming at the mouth. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and sarin was also not found at the site as well. So they mm-hmm. have no idea what could have caused that in those videos. And there was, so there's an executive cover-up at the executive level. Yeah, And the documents are now public, Tariq, and I think mm-hmm. you wanted to obviously raise that issue in your, your previous job at Newsweek, and mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how many other journalists are out there right now that are looking at this. I mean, mm-hmm. is the media not in a catch-22 right now, Tariq, because there's been such a den- uh, blackout of this story that mm-hmm. if they come to it now, after people like Peter Hitchens and others mm-hmm. have and you know yourself and, and many others have been talking about this it's it's going to give credence to those who have already been covering it what yeah. will they, or what will they do how will they handle this would they just leapfrog all that and then create a new yeah. narrative and ignore everybody else i mean that's a very interesting point i think because they are in a very difficult position because it's not just they've ignored all four wikileaks leaks i mean they will have to essentially apologize for eight years of terrible reporting on Syria. Um, and it's not just Syria, you see it on in many other countries too. Um, but yes, it's it's becoming this really, I mean, absurd situation because the, the information is, is all public. Um, it's not, obviously there are, you know, technical aspects of it to, that, you know, that may be difficult to understand. But, you know, to understand the general gist, it's, it's it's not too difficult to understand you know the average person can just have a read of what wikileaks has published and it's fairly clear to see i mean and this is the other thing you know you have um a number of propaganda and trolling accounts on twitter that will try and minimize what's being said in these wikileaks things but you know it's almost interesting what they don't say um you know no one denies the existence of these documents and, you know, some of these documents have been verified by Reuters and, and you know, it's, they're very clearly genuine. I mean, you've got several names, you've got emails, you've got official, you know, with, with you know, the OPCW insignia on them. So it's, it's becoming this absurd situation where more and more information is coming. And I believe I'm, I'm not I haven't been in contact with WikiLeaks, but I believe there's more information coming. For example, I know that there is going to, that there is a letter which has um, been signed by 20 OPCW scientists, a memorandum of protest, which is going to be sharing kind of similar concerns. So I think, uh, you know, when you start to have these things in the public domain, it leaves you know those publications in a very difficult position because they've not they've not covered the story at all. I mean, I don't know how they're going to have to do that. Other, it's either going to be just put the hand up in the air and say, "Okay, listen, <laughs> we've we've you know had a bit of a cock up here," or they'll just have to you know keep ignoring it, and then their, their unfortunately their reputation is going to keep declining to the point that it's unsalvageable and personally speaking and i want to make this clear is that i i don't want this situation to happen you know i'm very passionate about journalism and even though i have severe criticisms of it i essentially want to see it be successful and you know be respected among people and i think it's important that we have a strong and you know independent and journalism that holds government to account i don't want to see the entirety of the media establishment just be considered a sham essentially and that's part of the reason i wanted to raise this issue and this is some this is something i wanted to raise with my editors like i said i'm i'm aware of the media landscape i know certain things about saying things about syria are difficult to say but 
and I was trying to meet with my um, my editor in London to, to have this discussion where I wanted to say, look, I understand this is controversial, but Newsweek's reputation is going to just look atrocious if we don't cover this story. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I wanted to make them aware of that argument. But sadly, when I tried to meet with my editor, she refused to meet me on three separate occasions. And finally, when she did respond, it wasn't, it didn't address any of my concerns about the story of, or didn't give me any legitimate reasons. It was just the character attack of me. That was the point that I decided to kind of go public and resign. What, what, what's interesting is, is uh, I'm looking at the response uh, from the latest OPCW documents that have been leaked. And immediately uh, what we saw is uh, much like the previous one, but Bellingcat and members of Bellingcat led by Nick Waters is one of their lead media mm-hmm. Uh, t- Twitter personalities. He he was attacking the whistleblowers mm-hmm. and attacking Wiki, trying to discredit WikiLeaks, discredit the whistleblower Alex, mm-hmm. uh, his pseudonym. And we saw that with the previous ones as well. But other mm-hmm. different people were doing it. Brian Whitaker, former Middle East uh, editor of the Guardian, mm-hmm. uh, he was doing the same thing. And this is all documented on on their social media mm-hmm. activity. And I thought that's interesting because uh, rather than address any of the contents of the leaks or mm-hmm. say, hey, well, there might be a problem here, or, there's an internal cover-up, that's mm-hmm. a scandal. Instead of that, everyone from Bellingcat and the mainstream Middle East correspondents from the, the Telegraph, uh, the Washington mm-hmm. Post, etc., they're all basically f- boosting Bellingcat who's attacking the whistleblowers and discrediting WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. That, that's all I've seen happen. So mm-hmm. the the mainstream, I think, in that point, Tariq, I think, at some point, you have to you have to s- sort of surmise that the media is 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 playing a role in a in a cover up in in a way. Yes, I don't know, um, I don't know if you you agree with my uh, conclusion there, but I think she, that. yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't deny that, um, and I think I'm just I guess trying to be a little bit careful with my language just because. I'm, you know, I've worked in this industry. I'm sure, you know, some of my colleagues at Newsweek, for example, were excellent reporters. Um, um, so I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. But I think, you know, you are right at, at a senior level. Um, you know, there is definitely yeah, a cover at the editorial yeah. level. Yeah. yeah. And I think, again, you know, why I try to have this attitude is that my understanding of, of it is that when I actually talked to other reporters about these issues or, you know, in the kind of brief conversations I'd have, my understanding is that very few journalists are actually aware of how propaganda works. And I, it wasn't, and I guess I only really had that perspective because it was something that I took the time myself to study, while, you know, because I felt it was important while I was, you know, trained to be a journalist. Um, I think most journalists kind of just getting to the trade one way or another, they're taught the kind of basics of how, you know, news writing and et cetera. But, you know, this history of how the, the media has been manipulated is, is absent from, you know, all journalism training. You know, understanding of pro- propaganda is also absent. You know, I, d- I don't want to be critical of those journalists. I just, you know, want them to be more aware of these issues. And hopefully going forward, you know, more journalists will take the time to, to learn about these issues and actually take them seriously because, you know, I think it's a very important part of the profession that needs to be understood. You're definitely right in the fact that there is definitely a 
you know, widespread cover up within the media about this. And again, I think this goes back to the fact that so many figures within the media have these links to, you know, very powerful think tanks uh, that essentially make a lot of money from going to war. And, you know, that's, it's kind of, in my opinion, it's, you know, the military industrial complex is something that's been talked about a lot, you know, probably for the past 50 years or so. And I think what my story uh, exposed is that actually this military industrial complex is now spread over to the news industry. And I think I'm sure there's been others that have uh, that have made that observation. I'm, um, I can't be, I'm sure there are books that I'm aware of, etc., that have discussed this. But I think they essentially make, you know, make a profit as well from from continue you know spreading these lies yeah no you're uh, what you've discovered uh, really is supported by uh, what a lot of other people have testified to written about books have been published as well so you've you've given a, a, a sort of late later update now to say that yes this is a thing happening this is a real thing happening yeah but the open, the propaganda aspect is interesting because propaganda has changed because media has changed, and I, I agree with you. The military has uh, infiltrated, you could say, or is really driving entertainment. Some aspects of entertainment, certainly Hollywood, it's very well documented that yeah. that's the case. But now into the news, into the news cycle. Certainly, if you look at the advertisers on CNN, it's Northrop Grumman, it's Lockheed Martin, it's Raytheon, it's the U.S. Army recruitment. That mm-hmm. that's half of their advertising budget, probably, and the rest is pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. So, so that's who really who they're working for uh, as a major broadcaster, major cable news network in America. Mm-hmm. Fox, much the same, although slightly different. Mm-hmm. MSNBC, very similar. General Electric, I don't know if they still do, but they used to own NBC. BuzzFeed is owned is, is two hundred million by NBC International was pumped into BuzzFeed, so they've mm-hmm. even created these alternative quote alternative outlets. Uh, I believe the Daily Beast and Newsweek were under the same banner at one time, in mm-hmm. part of B- Barry Diller's uh, empire there to create. But uh, the Daily Beast is another one. It's meant to look alternative, but it, so it feeds CNN in a kind of a Bellingcat way. Mm-hmm. But but what's interesting about propaganda is this idea of open source. Open mm-hmm. source investigation. You've heard this a lot. Yeah. And this is a bit of a misnomer, but it's been marketed as the next best thing since sliced bread. And this <sighs> is absolutely pivotal in understanding these OPCW leaks because a lot of the arguments is about what people saw in these YouTube videos of a mm-hmm. supposed chemical attack. Exactly. And it's not, it, when they say open source, it's meant to think like uh, the way it's portrayed by the experts and by the media mavens is that it's just it's it's data it's it's uh, forensic evidence laying around online and people like uh, Elliot Higgins and Bellingcat are scooping it up and showing it to us mm-hmm. but really a video that's uploaded to YouTube comes mm-hmm. with a headline a narrative it is it has staging potentially involved yeah. so it's no different than CNN doing it but what the media has done is kind of there is a danger that the open source revolution in journalism can mm-hmm. absolutely be manipulated and evidence can be contaminated and it's not absolutely. open source at all. It's curated. It's absolutely, absolutely curated. So I don't know what your th- thoughts regarding the OPCW situation is yeah, on, I mean, on that front. I mean, it's it's 100% linked to that. And I think that is the, the new trend that we've seen. And, you know, several other journalists um, have pointed this out. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Robert Fisk is an example. Um, he was one of the very 
in early early ones to kind of start raising the doubts about some of the videos that were surfacing he was because you know he's covered war for a very long time you know in northern ireland and lebanon and various places across the middle east and you know he was one of the first ones to say you know how come these videos don't show um don't show soldiers presumably you know they always only showed women and women and children you know that might seem like a silly point to some people but you know if presumably when when devastating attacks take place they are they are being fired in areas where combat is taking place but these videos are always have always been absent of of those um and again it's because it's they're made to you know fulfill a, a specific narrative and you know which is essentially look how evil uh, ex dictator is or ex you know, and it goes back to what I was saying to about the language as well is that uh, we have to remember that the the government in Syria or Bashar al-Assad is the legitimate, you know, president of Syria. You will never really ever see him referred to in an article, and this is not this is not um, you know before the the smear artists begin their critiques of me. This is not to defend anything in his past, but regardless of, of his history, um, which I'm, I'm not, on, you know, not in favour of, but he is the legitimate ruler of Syria. You'll never, you'll never see that in a in a news article. Or say, you know, dictator. You'll never hear the word government. You'll hear the word regime. You know, can you imagine writing a story about the British government? You know, in a, in a typical politics story where you're referring to it as the british regime um it would it just would never happen but when it's when it's you know when we're talking about syria it's always the regime this very loaded word filled um to you know make you feel a certain way towards the government to and it happens in a way that the average reader doesn't isn't aware of and so that's it's part of that um so these videos i think it's a it's been this natural, well, uh, this evolution of atrocity propaganda, which has a very long history. You know, the one of the examples I like to use, and I mentioned it in one of my previous articles, is the first Kuwait war, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the you know the 15 year old girl goes and appears in front of Congress to say Iraqi soldiers are taking uh, babies out of incubators and throwing them on the floor. And, you know, stealing the incubators and, you know, public opinion was about, you know, going to that war was was split at the time. A lot of people saying, I'm not sure, you know, we're not sure this is the correct, correct action. After this 15 year old girl's testimony was given, the public was overwhelmingly in favor of, of going to war and go to war. They did uh, in you know, the largest alliance of countries since World War Two. Four years later, I believe, or three years later, uh, investigative re- reporter reveals that the story was completely fabricated and the 15-year-old girl was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador. And you, you, again, we see this, We, you know, the Iraq example is very similar. And so I think in Syria, we've this is why we've had this evolution now where it's shift, this atrocity propaganda, which is fabricated to make you feel a specific way, has shifted into social media. So we're getting lots and lots of videos. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that every video that comes out of Syria is, is not correct. That's not, would be a silly thing to say. But I think, you know, certain videos that are 
very emotive. They're, they're faked to, you know, make you feel a certain way. And, and this is not something I say without evidence. It's, it's not something that's a conspiracy theory. Um, for example, the Sunday Times and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism did a story which um, somehow uh, has actually since been removed, which has kind of been funny and uh, something I want to look into. But uh, I remember at the time they did a story about a British PR firm called Bell Pottinger. I'm very uh, familiar with that. Yeah. yeah, and how they, you know, were paid, I think, $540 million by the, you know, CIA, NSA, US State Department to produce propaganda videos from Iraq uh, linked to Islamic State. Um, I did some stories about um, Egyptian authorities arresting people that were filming um, staged propaganda in Egypt to be used in Syria. Um, another story that I wrote about was how a British doctor, Dr. Sh- uh, Shajul Islam, I believe, who was a doctor in the UK, he travelled to Syria uh, and was in the um, opposition opposition held areas and uh, was involved with the kidnapping of two Western journalists, uh, John Cantiel and another who I forget the name of, but a Dutch photojournalist. He was arrested when he when he came back to the United Kingdom uh, in 2012, um, taken to Belmarsh Prison. Suddenly, with no real explanation, he was released without charges and he traveled back to Syria. A few months later, he's appearing on NBC News to, you know, say how devastating these chemical weapons attacks are. You know, no one mentioned the fact that he was considered a committed jihadist and a terrorist by MI6. It didn't mention the fact that he was struck off Britain's medical council, presumably for those reasons, even though those files were sealed. And I I didn't have access, but I could see the files that said that he was struck off medical. So he wasn't considered a, you know, a, a working doctor anymore. So he just appeared to be this, you know, humanitarian person appearing, you know, off, off of his own back to go and, you know, save women and children in Syria. But actually, two years earlier or something like that, he was considered a, a considered terror, uh, committed terrorist. So, you know, these there are obvious signs of, you know, foul play going on that just don't get reported. And it's only people that specifically look out for them can, can find that. But, you know, to most people, these facts are not known. No, that's true. That's true. And you look at uh, the the film that's tipped to win best Oscar, uh, best documentary film at the mm-hmm. coming Oscars is called For Sama. Of course, it's about East Aleppo, and it mm-hmm. stars a uh, doctor Hamza Al Khatib, the last doctor in Aleppo, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so he, uh, very similar to what you just described, he's photographed with uh, Nusra Front, mm-hmm. Al Qaeda militants, uh, with. With murderers and kidnappers, uh, he is uh, on social media making uh, incendiary remarks about the uh, how to dispose of uh, Syrian Arab army conscripts uh, mm-hmm. who've been captured or killed or beheaded or whatever. I mean, it's just shocking stuff when you look at this who this person is. But he's now been laundered through the Hollywood soap machine, mm-hmm. and he's now on every panel. He's he's the, the darling of the Guardian set. Mm-hmm. As well, everybody loves the film. It's getting rave reviews. I mean, it, we we yeah. saw the same thing happen. Sorry to interrupt you. No, um, we saw the same thing happen with the white helmets. I actually understand that. Um, you know, this. You know, there's been a film about Bellingcat, and I understand that they're actually in the works with Netflix to. Uh, you know, to, to have that film on Netflix soon. So you, you, it's, it's definitely 
yes, that that propaganda is not just limited to to the media. It's it's in all the you know entertainment industries that we have access to, and all the kind of mediums that we that we all use on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I'll just I'll just add to mm-hmm. we'll wrap up in a, in a couple minutes. But you know, regarding that whole the YouTube videos, is it whenever I questioned what happened in Duma mm-hmm. in the beginning. People would say, "What you are, you know? What about the fifty dead children that Assad murdered?" And then they'll mm-hmm. they'll post up a picture of the white helmets holding a baby with dust mm-hmm. in his hair, and then that's meant to kind of ward people off asking questions. Yeah. But but really, if you look at what what it, what a piece of artifact is online, uh, a YouTube video, for instance, mm-hmm. I look at it as as data without a narrative. I take the narrative out. I look mm-hmm. at it forensically. Mm-hmm. And I always consider the motive because I also mm-hmm. consider the motive when CNN runs a report as well because I don't see any difference between someone uploading a, a, a sort of staged YouTube video and a CNN news report. It's just to me the same thing, but it's set, it's treated as separately. It's treated as open source uh, uh, evidence now under this banner of open source Aussie net mm-hmm. uh, evidence. So, but you have to include uh, you have to consider a motive you have to include the possibility of of deception there's no way you mm-hmm. can go so they they're outsourcing the deception now to sure. activists on the ground mm-hmm. uh, and they're relying on the outsourcing to bellingcat to make sense of what that means and mm-hmm. it's the same propaganda as the mainstream uh, media have produced before for war only it's been repackaged Mm-hmm. It's to me. It's the same thing. It's just now it's moved, changed, morphed, and been kind of re- repackaged. Yeah. And now the mainstream's in the business of attacking dissenting opinions mm-hmm. on on social media, how, uh, mobbing people, and I, I and Bellingcat's basically training the next uh, in my in my mind the next the next version of sofa surfing surveillance experts. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's a very kind of dystopic future there it, but. it is yeah um and this is you know why I, I felt so strongly about it because you know something like the freedom of the press it, it's not something to be taken lightly and people probably don't really fully understand you know really grasp how big of an impact it can have if we really lose that and i mean some people might say we've we've lost it for some quite some time now again i i the reason I say these things is, you know, despite my Arabic and Russian history, um, you know, I deeply care about the UK and the United States. I've spent a lot of time in both of those countries and, you know, my, all of my, you know, my friends and best, you know, experiences of life have been in those countries. And the reason I'm, I'm raising these issues is that, you know, we're going down very, very dangerous territory you know, we, we need to kind of stand up to stop that happening. Um, thankfully, you know, the support um, has so far been pretty good. You know, there are definitely people that are seeming to kind of take note of this, um, you know, hoping that, you know, genuine, you know, people that care about, you know, the First Amendment or freedom of speech or freedom of press will start to take this seriously because, you know, it's not hyperbole that Western civilization it's it's greatest it's greatest invention is freedom of speech um and if we lose that we're we're very quickly going to become um, you know the very types of countries and dictatorships that we used to historically 
be so opposed again, uh, you know, and and rightly so. So yeah, definitely, I think we need to, you know, um, hopefully we start seeing people resist this, and and there are, you know, despite all the the negativity around the story, there are positive signs. Hopefully, that some of those positive signs continue. Yeah, and and uh, by the way, so you're you know you've announced on on Twitter today, mm-hmm. uh, we link to your uh, Twitter feed on the show page. You can just uh, punch through Tariq Haddad's name, and you'll take you to his Twitter account. And you said that you know I've I've made the decision to go independent. So mm-hmm. uh, you're you're charting a course in in the in the near term at least uh, mm-hmm. to go on your own. And uh, you've you've put up a link there to uh, a. PayPal and sort of a donate mm-hmm. facility there, uh, so mm-hmm. you you're you're advertising that. So we're put a link to that right to your Twitter page. Thank so you very much. encourage people to go check out your Twitter feed uh, for more Thanks. information and updates on on what you're doing there. Thank you very much. And I guess that could be a a story in itself is how um you know Twitter and social media platforms have because they have these large contracts with with the U.S. government as well. Uh, sort of starting to help you know with this this whitewashing and the censorship of the story some of those tweets as i'm sure you saw uh, were hidden yes to a large number of people and you know a lot of people started complaining about that and again if people are not convinced that we're sliding down this dangerous authoritarian um society definitely says something when twitter starts to hide the tweets of a professionally trained journalist who is a british citizen and you know just simply cares about freedom of speech and freedom of democracy um and those tweets are being hidden for trying to do journalism um i would recommend to twitter that it very strongly has a look at that policy because again it's it's not going to be a, a long-term solution no, and that's that is very disturbing, and we're seeing we're seeing uh, quite a bit of that uh, on Twitter as well. I mean, obviously that's that's been commonplace on Facebook now, shadow banning mm-hmm. and muting accounts, myself included, for the last three months. But uh, to to see that on Twitter, well, I'm not surprised, but yet I'm mm-hmm. not happy about it either. Yeah. Let's let's hope that uh, some intervention takes place. It's 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 going to be a big challenge in 2020 to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not an easy road forward, as as you've already stated. We're going to need everybody on board. Everyone's going to need to help everybody who are all single mind on the same mission. And I think that that mission is basically to try to keep the the, the free press alive in in some form as much mm-hmm. as possible, especially in the West especially in the U.S., especially in the U.K. and Europe, mm-hmm. uh, but also to in the pursuit of the truth and let, yeah. letting that be the guiding principle rather than uh, politics or being geopolitically correct, as, mm-hmm. as we said before. And just a final point on that, maybe hopefully to end on, on a kind of positive note and hopefully how we can address this problem. I really urge people that are listening to write to their you know, respective politicians or congressmen or, or you know, local councillors. Um, it might seem like a, a silly thing or, you know, that you have, you're relatively powerless. But I think, you know, hold these people to account and tell them, you know, why is this being, you know, why is this permitted? Um, why is this being permitted, I should say? Um, and also, you know, people who read places like the BBC, The Guardian or CNN, write to them frequently, pester them, and ask them why are they not adequately covering the story. 
Um, don't just dismiss them as fake news. I think that's counterproductive. I think we need to be demanding that they that they cover this story. Absolutely. Yeah. Get proactive. That's Absolutely. good advice. That's gonna that's gonna cause some uh, some change, <clears throat> some inertia in in the system. Hopefully, great yeah. advice uh, from Tariq Kadad. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Tariq. Thank and, you. Uh, and uh, good luck on your uh, latest venture. I'm sure we'll be seeing more of your work in the future and hopefully speaking to you again. Yeah, I really appreciate your time and thanks for a, a good conversation. No, that's our pleasure. And okay. go uh, look, click through the links to Tariq's social media page. And uh, do uh, we recommend that if you want to support a, a good independent journalist who is uh, taking a bold path, uh, this is uh, one we think uh, is worth your worthy of your support. So go check that out. Support Tariq Haddad in his endeavors. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. See, some say I'm just a part of it. See, some say I'm just a part of it.